Thank you for joining us again on the Real Biblical Application Podcast. Today we have with us uh, Isaac Moreno, who's come on to discuss some pretty important verses from Genesis chapter 6. Isaac, how about you take some time to introduce yourself? And when you do so, I also want you to tell your story of how you became a Christian, because I find it uh, fascinating. All right, sweet. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, We're really excited for our study, but yeah, like Stuart said, my name's Isaac, and right now I'm currently working as the evangelist with the East Auburn Church of Christ in Auburn, California. So I've been a Christian for over four years. Lord willing, in January, it'll it'll be five years, but really kind of my background was I did not grow up going to going to church consistently. Um, I grew up occasionally going to the Church of Christ, but it was a it was a Cups and Classes congregation in Houston, California. But I was just so young, I didn't even understand the difference or know, know anything really. And it honestly did not help that the congregation I went to was Spanish speaking, and I did not know Spanish. So that didn't really help me at all. But Basically, growing up, I was based. I was really just biblically illiterate. Um, I'd go and visit some community churches or denominational churches, but even not knowing the Bible, I could tell that something was something wasn't really adding up. I couldn't tell you where this passage was at the time, but. When you go to the mega church and they're selling the three for. Ju- three for 30 Jesus DVD. And then comes to your mind when Jesus says, you've made my father's house a marketplace. You know, that was just something, there was always little things that didn't add up that really didn't make any sense at all. So that naturally weeded out a lot of churches, but really where my conversion started, the conversion story started was I I was born and raised in Oakdale, California, and that's just a really small town, like 20,000 people. And I just happened to work at the gym there. And because Oakdale is such a small town, the gym is the only, it's the only social place of interaction. It's like the mall. You're going to see anyone and everyone that you know in the town. You're going to see people you don't want to see. You're going to see your ex-girlfriend, you're going to see your coaches, you're going to see your teachers, you're going to see everybody, your friends, parents. Well, at this point, I got into contact with now brother Wade Branch and Lane Branch. I, I went to school with Wade. He's a year older than me. But honestly, we didn't talk much in high school. If you were to ask me to describe Wade, I'd just say, He's the, the redhead who plays baseball. That's all I could tell you about Wade. We didn't talk at all. But, you know, it's my job at the gym to to kind of say, hey, how's it going? How you doing? And so on and so forth. Well, as time went on, we started to work out together. And I just got to say this at this point. We never talked about God. We never talked about church or anything like that. 
But it became quickly apparent that these guys, him and his brother, were religious. They were Christians of some sort. I didn't know what, but they were religious. And what kind of gave me that impression was they did not curse. They did not talk in a worldly way. We didn't talk about worldly things. And honestly, they dressed modestly. And in the gym, that's a big deal, even for a guy. You know, for what a guy doesn't wear at the gym. Or what he chooses to wear. So all of these actions without a word. I know First Peter 3, 1 and 2 talks about a believing wife without a word can win over her believing her unbelieving husband. With these guys, it was a similar thing where it was quite literally actions speak louder than words. So they were being a light. Mm. And this went on for... I don't know. I don't even know how long. It was just like a month or two of working out together here and there. But I remember vividly. This was a Friday night at the gym, and and I got the closing shift. And Lane's got one foot out the door. He's leaving the gym. Like he quite literally has one foot out the door, and I just asked him, "Hey, Lane, I got a question for you." He goes, "What's up, bro?" And I just asked them, where do you go to church? And if you could imagine this, we never talked about God or the church. He's caught off guard completely. And he just says, well, I go to the Church of Christ by the skate park here in town. Well, he had no idea. I had some familiarity with the Church of Christ. So that was like, that felt like safe because I was like, okay, well, I grew up going there some like visiting, I, even though it was they worship different. So then I asked them, do you like it there? It's just like a, a normal, typical question from someone in the world. And, uh, you know, Jesus in his ministry, we learned that he got disciples to follow him. He just say, come and see. So Lane Branch in the most California surfer way possible, he goes, yeah, man, it's pretty cool. You should come check it out. And I got his number. So I visited. I don't know if it was that Sunday or the Sunday after, but after after the first service I went to, the first Sunday morning, Wade and Lane did a good job of, they just showed me a verse for everything we did in the worship. And I wasn't going in there to try and debate or I didn't know anything. I was a clean slate. So I just told him, yeah, man, if it says that, then I agree. And that's great. And I told them that very, that very moment, look, I know I need to get baptized. I can't tell you if it'll be, if I'll be here a week, a month or a year, but I need to, I need to see that I'm going to change uh, before I do this. And they were really encouraging. They just said, yeah, man, we understand. Like that's completely reasonable. <laughs> well, I started visiting for about two months but what really sped up the whole process was i don't know if anybody here remembers hearing of this brother trey jones's little brother uh ty jones got sick during this time of like late 2017 and we i i remember the brethren now the brethren, now I could call them brethren, at Oakdale announcing this when I was visiting. And 
you know, when when you're visiting a church and you're you're an outsider, the names don't really you, you don't picture anybody. They're just a name you don't know at all. The situation or, or anything like that. Well, a few weeks after this, it was conveyed to me that by Wade, he said, look, man, you you know Ty Jones. He was in your graduating class. They showed me a picture and and it, it really was sobering just because I had my last period senior year with Ty. And once you, if you told me he was a Christian, looking back, it made complete sense. You could just tell he was just, he was just pure. He was just, you know, Jesus said that about Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. That's really how Ty was. Ty uh, ended up passing away tragically. The doctors really still don't even know what happened. But that left such an impression on me. I remember it was the maybe the week after his memorial uh, service. It was a Sunday morning. And they did the invitation song and I didn't get up. But during communion, I'm sitting there thinking, like, Isaac, you've been coming here for like two months. You you believe in this, like, like what's taking you so long? And in that moment, I remember thinking about Ty, because here was somebody, we were in the we were the same age, the same graduating class, and he just went into a coma one day, like quite literally, he just went into a coma, and no one knows how or why, and he ended up passing away very quickly. And I remember thinking to myself, if I leave here and I die, I know where I'm going. You know, this young man, I'm pretty sure he had the next five years of his life plan, where he wanted to go to school, who he was going to marry, everything. And he's, he passes away just out of nowhere. And I realized the way I was thinking was I was thinking as if I had 50 years guaranteed. I was just going to come back to this. So after the service, I go up to Wayden Lane and I say, hey, uh, I want to obey the gospel today. Could you uh, ask your dad if he'd baptize me? They go, yeah, man. Awesome. And I just said, hey, I don't want this to be a big deal. Like, like I just want this to be a small group, like nothing crazy. The congregation at Oakdale has over 150 members. So that's why I said that. Well, and... Then it was time for me to obey the gospel, and we had a small group of about 40 people there to, to watch this go down. So, uh, yeah, that was January 14th of, 14th of 2018, and praise be to God, here we are. Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, many times people think that they have all the time in the world. Um I myself spent some time not going to church. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a stint of several years where I didn't go to church anywhere. And I, I knew where I was supposed to be. I knew what I was supposed to be doing. And the only thing that was going through my mind was, you know, maybe whenever I get older, or maybe in a year or two, I'll, I'll, you know, return to church. Uh, and I was just going to live my life however I wanted uh, for right. a while. 
and that was my mindset. And then, you know, there came a time where I would occasionally go to church. Um, you know, my conscience was still kind of eating at me a little bit. I knew I was supposed to be at church, but at the same time I was torn because I wanted to go out and have fun with my friends and take part in all this, uh, sin, uh, that me and my friends would partake in. Uh, because I mean, sin is fun. We can't, we can't deny that sin is fun. That, that's why sin is such a temptation. If it wasn't fun, it wouldn't be much of a temptation. Right. That's um, why scriptures quite literally say Moses gave up on the passing pleasures in Egypt. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a biblical concept. And so I, I started going for, you know, a while occasionally, and then I finally reached a point where I said, I'm either going to be fully committed to this or I'm going to be fully decommitted to this. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to either be all in or all out as some may say. And, and that seems to be kind of what you were saying too. You wanted to make sure that you were fully committed to being a Christian. You didn't want to just ha- hop in kind of halfway or anything like that. You wanted to make sure you were fully committed. So I, I certainly uh, understand that line of reasoning. And I, I think Wade uh, Branch will probably be coming on the podcast pretty soon as well. Uh, he at least has a topic, and we've been trying to find time for him to come on. And so I'm sure you know people get to know him uh, pretty soon on the podcast right. as well. Uh, but but I appreciate you sharing that story, um, and it, I hope that people find it encouraging. Uh, I hope that people who are in the church. Uh, see that you know sometimes it doesn't take much to get someone um, to start coming to church and to commit themselves to Christ. I think sometimes we think that it's going to take a bunch to get someone to commit, but we don't know where people are or uh, you know the condition of their heart. Sometimes we cast seed and it falls upon rocks, and sometimes we cast seed and it fall, falls on good and honest hearts. And if if Wade and Lane hadn't been that example to you, just being an example, not even talking about the Bible, um, you would have never asked them about where they went to church. Right. And you may have never come to a knowledge of the truth. And so I think there's a lot of important things that can be highlighted in that story about, you know, sometimes it doesn't take much and sometimes all it takes is just, being the best example in the world that you can be. It doesn't necessarily take having the most biblical knowledge or anything like that. It just takes being the best representative of Christ you can be. And uh, you can help change the world by, by doing just that. Amen. Well, let's dive into these verses here. We, we've talked for a while already, and we haven't even addressed the verses yet, but I, I, I always find that story encouraging because, like I said, you could probably turn that conversion into a, a sermon in itself, and you even use several verses in there uh, in your um, story. And I won't tell Lane and Wade that you called them a, a believing wife or anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so so let's dive into genesis chapter six 
But let's start off by reading the verses that we are talking about, and then maybe talk about some of the background of this verse and and why it's it tends to be somewhat controversial, or why it tends to have a bunch of different um, interpretations. Okay, sweet. So the Bible says in Genesis chapter six and verse one. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So really, these might be a strange verses to go to. And we might be thinking to ourselves, why, why are we even here? These verses seem pretty straightforward. But in my time studying the Bible with people, we have a study we go through, and that's called the Gospel from Genesis. Where we just look at a lot of the Old Testament foreshadows or types or allusions to the New Testament. Whenever we get to this story, I'm about 99.999% certain. If you ask people who were the sons of God and the daughters of men that had that they had giants, they gave birth to giants and men of renown, they're going to tell you. This was angels, angelic relationships with mankind. That's usually how that goes. Um, it's definitely a Hollywood, uh, New York Times bestseller interpretation, a fantasized and romanticized view of the scriptures. Which, Lord willing, what we're about to see is, it's not true. And hopefully we'll try and dissect this bit by bit in an understandable way. But uh, that's really the issue we're tackling right now. Now, we do have to acknowledge this before we even prove anything. So this phrase, sons of God, is the phrase people use as these are angels. This is talking about angels. The daughters of men are women. They represent mankind. <laughs> this phrase, the sons of God, does refer to angels in at least one other place, or excuse me, not one other place, but this phrase is used in another place. And in this situation, it is talking about angels. And that's in Job chapter one and verse six. And uh, Stuart, if, if you want to read that verse just real quick, Job chapter one and verse six. All right, I got it here. Now there was a day when the son, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here we see it's a very clear-cut understanding that this passage is talking about angels. It's talking about when Satan, he goes to, he goes to speak with God in the story of Job. Angels are present. This time they're referred as sons of God. Lord willing, what we're going to see throughout the rest of our study is just because this phrase means something in one place, in Job, 
doesn't necessarily mean it means the same thing in Genesis. And really, the way we're going to prove this, we're trying and try and prove this through the Bible, is in the life of Jesus. So we want to turn to Matthew chapter 22, to the life of Jesus. And before we even read these verses, we, do, we would do well to just establish the context. In Matthew chapter 22, it's towards the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, this is the last week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. And in Matthew chapter 22, we find ourselves on a day that many scholars call the day of questioning. During this day, the religio-political groups, uh, the popular groups of, of the first century, they all go to Jesus to ask him questions. Now you'd think, oh, this is a sweet event. They just want to learn. These guys, they go to the best place possible. They want to be disciples. But that could not be further from the truth. The questions these men are asking are intended to tempt, test, and trick him. So these guys are not sincere seekers at all. They want Jesus to fail when they ask him these questions. Well, the question we're going to look at is the question the Sadducees ask. Now, we're not going to read all the verses. We're going to summarize this. But in Matthew chapter 22 and verses, I believe it's 22 through 29, this section starts. And that is Matthew 22, actually verse 23. So the Sadducees, they go to Jesus. And when we think of the Sadducees, we often think of the Pharisees. These are the two most popular groups of, of Jewish religion. But these two groups are, are contrary to one another. The Sadducees have three particular interesting beliefs. Number one, they do not believe in a resurrection. A physical resurrection. We're not talking about that they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We're talking they don't believe in the concept that the Bible in any way, Old Testament especially, even refers to the fact that people will be raised from the dead at some point. So they don't believe in that, the resurrection. They also do not believe that one spirit continues to exist after physical death. And lastly, number three, they don't believe in angels. So that's why people often make the comment, they're sad you see, they're sad you sees, because they're really, mm -hmm. it, it's like a grim and dark religion. It's who would, who would ever want to believe that theology? But the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, they believe in a resurrection. They believe in the spirit existing after death. And they believe in angels. So that's why these two groups are contrary to one another but the main thing we want to get it at is the sadducees ask the question so the sadducees they go to jesus and we love this someone asks a worst case hypothetical a worst case hypothetical they go to jesus and they ask him well you know in the law of moses the 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 scriptures say that if a man dies Having without having a child, the brothers, one brother of this 
deceased man has to marry his widow until they have a son. And the whole point of this was, this was to continue the fallen brother's lineage. This concept's talked about in Deuteronomy 25 and 5. So they bring up this concept. They say, Jesus, this guy, he dies. He doesn't have any kids. Just like Moses said, a brother remarries the widow. But he dies before he could have a son for the brother. And this happens several times. So they ask Jesus, well, in the afterlife, in heaven, a concept they don't even believe in, they ask, whose wife is she going to be? For they all had her. So you might be thinking, how does this even relate to the topic of angels? Or what is talked about in Genesis 6? Well, we'll see in verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 22. Stuart, if you'd please read that. Matthew 22, 29 and 30. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So in these scriptures we find an interesting connection back to angels. Jesus first, he declares very bluntly and very plainly, he tells the Sadducees, paraphrase obviously, he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You guys are mistaken. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And just as a side note, no one will ever know the power of God unless they know the scriptures. Because it's through the scriptures we learn about the power of God. So, in verse 30, Jesus begins to debunk their false theology. He says in the resurrection, they neither marry Nobody will be married nor given in marriage. But instead, we will be like the angels of God in heaven. So Jesus, in, a, in two sentences, or one sentence, or two verses, he debunks all three of their ideas. There is a resurrection. Your spirit does continue to exist. There are angels. And what Jesus is teaching is he's saying... Look, in heaven, we're going to be like the angels. No one's going to be married. The thing, the point that we want to get from all of this is that angels don't even have romantic relationships among themselves. So how big of a stretch is it to say that in Genesis 6, angels have romantic relationships with mankind? What is a son of God, or who are the sons of God here in Genesis chapter 6? Is there some place we can go to kind of um, diagnose who these sons of God are? Right, so that's perfect. So that's exactly what we got to do next. We know the sons of God can't be angels, so they got to be someone else. We get a clue back in Genesis 3. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read verse 15. Uh, if you please read that verse. And I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this verse, kind of like Matthew 22, might sound strange to us at a first glance. But we know that in Genesis 3, the Bible records the fall of man. 
Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden, and they're kicked out of the garden because of their sin. And in this verse, in chapter 3 and verse 15, we read of the first biblical prophecy. This is what many scholars call, scholars call the Proto-Evangelium. Proto is just a fancy way of saying first. Evangelium is the Latin way of saying gospel. So you can preach the gospel from Genesis 3. This is the first ever prophecy, and it's the first one that points forward to Jesus. And to this verse, if we want to understand it, there's three different parts to it. The first part is the personal conflict. That's the, with the phrases, God will put enmity between you, the serpent, which is Satan, and the woman, that is Eve. God was going to make, was going to put enmity between Eve and Satan. Enmity is just another word for saying, another way for saying to make enemies. Okay, that's the personal conflict. What we want to look at is the second conflict, which is the posterity conflict. That's the second part where it says, and between your seed and her seed. So this is talking about the offspring of Satan going to war spiritually against the offspring or descendants of Eve. Now, one thing we want to clear up is this is not teaching that Satan literally has spawn or physical offspring. What this is talking about, there are two spiritual families. The way one becomes a descendant or a son of Satan is not by conception. It's by decision. It's by decision, not by conception. And to help us understand this, this concept, we need to go to 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 1 John 3, 10 through 12. And I'll go ahead and read these verses. It says in verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. So, John the Apostle brings up this account of Cain and Abel, which occurs in Genesis 4. We know that Cain kills Abel, but what John tells us is that Cain's actions showed that he was a follower. He was a descendant of the wicked one. That is Satan. And in verse 10, John explains, the way you know if someone's a child of God is if they practice righteousness and obey God. Now, kind of as, a, as an aside, a side point, this should be sobering to people who are Christians, those who have become children of God through baptism and have been made part of the family of God. Because this verse teaches us even though you are baptized, you can still be a follower of the devil. So that's something we all must be on guard on, on guard for. 
And the way we can make sure that we are being a true child of God is by following God and obeying Him. But what this teaches us is that because Cain killed his brother, not loving him, he was a descendant of Satan in the spiritual sense, not the physical sense. It's because he chose to obey Satan and disobey God. How this relates back to Genesis 3 is, this is the epitome of the two spiritual families at war. Of the wicked one was Cain. Of God was Abel. Cain killed Abel. And this is the first battle between the two spiritual families. That makes sense? Do you have any comments for us, Stuart? No. My mind, uh, whenever we talk about sons of God um, being those who are faithful to God, uh, I would say my, my mind goes to Galatians chapter 3 uh, when it says that we are sons of God there. And there, whenever it's talking about us being sons of God, it's not, I mean, obviously that implies that we are children of God, but it also implies an inheritance as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that's what's going on here in uh, Genesis chapter 6. I don't think it's talking about you know, these men were sons of God because of an inheritance that they will be given. But that's at least another uh, maybe encouraging thing that we want to be in the family of God uh, for selfish reasons at times. Right. Uh, The the selfish reason being that if we are children of God, if we are sons of God, uh, then we are in the family lineage that will receive an inheritance one day. And that inheritance uh, being eternal life, which is a wonderful thing to to think about. And so I really love this this family concept of looking at God as our father and and that relationship of father and son or father and daughter uh, type of familial relationship. I, I think it's very interesting and there's lots of things that we can draw from that as well. But that's the only comment I have, which actually has nothing to do with what you said, but it's just what came to mind. No worries. Well, remember, our verses are in Genesis 6, so we still got to connect how this even flows back with sons of God and daughters of men. Well, remember, one of the repercussions or consequences of Cain killing Abel was that God separated Abel, not Abel, he separated Cain while he was on the earth. He gave him a mark on his forehead and he told, he said, nobody can avenge him. Nobody can kill him. And really, Cain experienced a hell on earth, a separation. He was cast out away from his family. Well, in Genesis 5, we learn of Cain's family growing. Well, we don't learn of Abel's family growing. In fact, At the end of chapter 4, we learn that after Abel was killed, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And Seth picks up the righteous side of the family and continues its lineage. So throughout chapter 5, we see the two families are growing. And when we get to chapter 6, we see the sons of God. That is 
the righteous descendants of Seth, they start to marry and intermingle with the daughters of men, the wicked descendants of Cain. After being banished away and separated, the population begins to grow and to grow and to grow, that the families, organically, they come into contact after, after Cain was once separated. So here's what we see is the true interpretation we believe in the scriptures of this story. The sons of God are the righteous descendants of Seth. The daughters of men are the wicked descendants of Cain. And the whole problem of Genesis 6 was this. This was the first time in the history of the world we see righteous people marry carnal or worldly people. And the scriptures teach us in Genesis 6, the wickedness over-influenced the righteousness. Wickedness abounded and abounded and filled the earth. And that is why God wanted to destroy the earth. So the first time God ever destroyed the world was because righteous people married the wrong people. And we wouldn't be doing our, our best in, if we didn't highlight this. I believe this is a good example that teaches us it's important who Christians marry. What, what do you think about that, Stuart? Well, I, I want to make uh, one comment, and then I'll, I'll comment on that. Uh-huh. Um, j- just to kind of highlight the, the evil that came from Cain's lineage, um, th- there was a descendant of Cain named Lamech. Now, Lamech is the first uh, biblically recorded polygamist. He had two wives, one named Ada and, and one named Zillah. He told his wives this. He said that he killed a man for wounding him and a boy for striking him. And then he said, in kind of a bragging way, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. So here we have a man who's a polygamist who killed people, and he said, you thought Cain was bad. Uh, look how bad I am, kind of bragging about it, about how evil he is. Mm-hmm. And, and this is you know, kind of just a taste of how evil this uh, lineage of Cain has become. Now, Something else for people who maybe read Genesis uh, 4, 5, and 6, leading up to our our verses. Um, Don't get confused because Noah's dad was also named Lamech, but uh, it's a different Lamech. It's the the righteous Lamech, not the unrighteous Lamech. (laughs) That is Noah's father. So just kind of keep that in mind if you read through uh, Genesis 4, 5, and 6. But anyways, um, you know, there's, uh, to your question about the importance of marriage and who you marry, me and my wife, uh, whenever, not not everyone knows this story, uh, whenever I asked my wife on a date, um, before she was my wife, obviously, (laughs) uh, she suggested that we have a Bible study. 
I think I invited her to go to like these food trucks uh, in Oklahoma City. I can't remember what it's called. It's called Blue Garden or something for those who live in Oklahoma City. It's a bunch of food trucks and you can go there and uh, you know get your food and sit down at some picnic tables and eat. Uh, I invited her to go there on our first date and she suggested a Bible study. And, you know, I, I was kind of in, in shock, uh, but also very impressed um, that her idea of spending quality time with someone wasn't going and, you know, going to a, you know, a, a garden where they have a bunch of food trucks and stuff, but it was actually spending time studying the Bible. I thought that was very impressive. Um, and, and our first Bible study. Uh, our first Bible study, our, our first date didn't end up being a Bible study, but we we did go to Chipotle, and then we went to uh, a gospel meeting that night. So it was kind of a Bible study, and and that was our first date together. And I I, I think that's something that men should be looking for. Um, I, I'm not saying if. You, the person you ask on a date to go to the taco truck is, if she says yes to that, then she's the wrong one. That's not what I'm right, saying. Right. Uh, this is the, the greatest test to know if, if uh, you're, the girl you're asking out is a, a righteous woman. If she says yes to the taco truck, then uh, she's a no-go. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, but look for signs like that. Just look for a woman who is interested in talking about the Bible. Uh, I've dated many girls that went to church, and the topic of uh, or Bible-related topics didn't really come up much. And that was partially on me. Uh, I should have been more focused in my life on um, those types of topics. So you can't put all the blame on on the woman. Maybe they were very interested in talking about those topics, and I didn't bring it up. That's a a very real possibility, especially knowing my immaturity. But if you find a woman who is excited about talking about the Bible, excited about studying the Bible, uh, asks you biblical questions, uh, you know, ask inquisitive questions that really push you in your Bible knowledge. That is a great sign of a woman that you should, you know, maybe consider holding on to. But if your relationship never produces these types of conversations, then you have to ask yourself, is this a woman who is going to help me grow spiritually? And I think that's an important aspect to look for in a wife. If if she's not pushing you to become a greater Christian, if she's not causing you to be a better student of the Bible or cause you to be the spiritual leader you need to be for a family one day, um, then I, I think you should start questioning that relationship or at the very least start looking at yourself and saying, maybe I'm the issue and maybe I need to focus more on these things and that way I can uh, push this relationship towards that. But Obviously, there's verses in the Bible that talk about the dangers of being unequally yoked in marriage, about marrying someone who's an unbeliever. And I want to echo those dangers. I think that's very important, especially if you are a female looking at a male 
make sure you know that person and you know their spiritual uh, understanding. Because whenever you agree to marry that person as a female, you are choosing to submit yourself to that person. And if they don't have a good spiritual understanding, this is the person who's going to be leading your family. And if they're not leading with a good biblical knowledge, then it can cause a lot of issues in the, in the relationship. And then you end up possibly becoming that first Peter chapter three woman, the believing wife who has to, you know, try to be the best example she can for her husband instead of the husband leading the, the family spiritually. I think that's very important um, that you look for a man who is spiritually minded. Uh, it can't just be a hunk. Uh, <laughs> can't just be good looking. Uh, they have to be a, a spiritual leader that you're looking for for your family, one that you would want to lead, lead your family, and one that you think uh, gives you the best possibility of getting your whole family to heaven. Uh, that's what you're looking for in a man. So I would just encourage everyone to look at the spiritual aspects of people's life and not just the outward appearance. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One piece of advice I'd like to give people is you should never be romantically involved with someone until you know you know who they are spiritually. And it goes back to everything you just said. The sons of God, the descendants of Seth, they were righteous. But they chose their partners, the wicked daughters of men, the descendants of Cain, because they saw they were beautiful. They didn't choose them because they were spiritual. It was because they were beautiful. Now, we know that mm -hmm. having some form of attraction, feeling some form of attraction, that's important. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3 and 3, do not let your adornment be merely outward. So it's, a, it's okay to care about the outward appearance to some extent, but we should never prioritize the external over the internal. The spiritual should always come before the physical, but yeah. So this brings us to helping us better understand who the sons of God are and the daughters of men. Just real quick recap, sons of God the righteous descendants of Seth and the daughters of men are the wicked descendants through Cain. They came to marry each other. The righteous married the wicked and the wickedness abounded over influenced the righteousness. Well, then we kind of get to another part of our study. And in our reading, we talked about how God made the point to say, that man's day shall be 120 years. He says that in Genesis 6 and verse 3. So real quick, before we get to the giants, these so-called angel human babies, um, I just want to help us understand what this means, this phrase means, yet man's day shall be 120 years. And just to get there the quickest to help us understand the best, I just want to read a quote from one scholar. This uh, scholar made the following comment, and I quote, God determined that he would not end endlessly go on seeking to guide men by his spirit here before the flood. 
A limit was placed upon such efforts. The remaining days would be 120 years. The length of time does not refer to the lifetime men would experience because there was no point in history when 120 years became the standard length of life for men. The 120 years was the length of time left before the flood, and since the flood began in the 600th year of Noah, Genesis 7 and verse 6, this determination of God was made when Noah was 480 years old. End quote. To kind of back up or reinforce this idea, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 he references this 120 years of waiting. In 1 Peter 3 and 20, the Bible says, Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So here we learn in 1 Peter 3 and 20, that this 120 year period, waiting period is called the divine long-suffering. God waited 120 years while Noah prepared the ark. And while Noah was preparing, he was also preaching. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So the point is, the 120 years was the time frame God gave Noah to prepare the ark and to warn the people by preaching. This now gives us, leaves us at our final verse of our study. In verse 4, and our last question is this, who are the giants if, depending on your translation, it might not say giants, it might say Nephilim. But the two words are interchangeable. So, after we've already proven the romanticized and fantasized idea that the giants, or excuse me, that the sons of God were not angels and that the daughters of men were not just all mankind, romantic relationships, after debunking that idea, we have to better understand who their offspring were. Who were the offspring of Cain's descendants, the daughters of men, and the sons of God, the descendants of Seth. So in some English Bibles, uh, like I said a second ago, some say giants, some say Nephilim. But because of the English use of the word giant in this place of the Hebrew word, many people conclude that when angelic beings had children with women, that the result was literal giants. And apparently these were super beings consisting of a mixture of half angel and half man. So that's how you get to that giant conclusion. But what this word actually means, so Nephilim comes from the word Nephal, which means low fall to fall upon as an oppressor. The main idea is that the offspring of these two groups produced oppressors, tyrants, men of renown. These were not literal giants. This word can be used as giants. Nephilim can be used as giants. We know that in Numbers 13 and verse 33. And that's talking about the descendants of Anak. 
But the point is, is that this word does not always mean giants. In other words, giants could be Nephilim, that is tyrants or oppressors, but also that Nephilim could be tyrants without being giants. Nothing in this present context speaks of the fact that this is speaking of enormous size. The whole point is that the sons of God, those of Seth, when they married the descendants of Cain, the wicked, it produced wickedness and led to wicked tyrants or oppressors. That makes a lot more sense than the sons of God and daughters of men is angels and mankind producing giants. So hopefully in our study, as we wrap up, we made the following points. Number one. The sons of God and daughters of men are the righteous followers of God, marrying the wicked followers of Satan. These are the two spiritual families that war against each other, as God predicted in Genesis 3.15. Number two, the 120 years refers to the amount of time God gave Noah and all of mankind to prepare for the flood. And lastly, number three, the giants of verse 4 are more likely tyrants or oppressors and not literal superhuman giants or beings. And that's our study. Stuart, you got any comments or anything you want to say? No, I, I thought you handled that very well. And I, I always think back to th there was a movie called Noah. Uh -huh. And in that movie, they depicted the Nephilim as giant rock monsters. <laughs> They're like these giant boulders that were that came to life into these giant, you know, monsters. And uh, I always thought that was interesting. But I, I like your depiction a lot better. It seems to make a lot more sense. Well, awesome. Well, hopefully that kind of clears things up uh, for just all the listeners and those who who are Bible students, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Th thanks for coming on. And I, I might tell people that if you have any questions uh, about this study, uh, feel free to contact me. Uh, if you want to talk to Isaac about it, I'll be happy to uh, forward your questions on to Isaac and Isaac. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I thought you did a great job with the study and hopefully uh, people will find it educational and beneficial to these uh, verses.